0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss Wynne Butler, Queens of the Stone Age, Muse, and Power Pop. My name is Stephen Haydn, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's a big young gravy fan. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you?
1: Yeah, I just I, I think we need to be clear right off the bat that by mentioning young gravy, we're not trying to glom onto TikTok trends. But this is a guy from Rochester. Well, Ma- we're
0: not trying, but we're also not not we're trying. No, yeah. I mean, if we if we do it accidentally, then we're not gonna kick those listeners to the curb. If we get some of the TikTok teens listening. Because I guess we should put Young Gravy in the description of this episode (laughs) just for
1: the SEO potential. Yeah. And failing that, like, maybe we'll get the audience that was, like, stoked to see him go to the VMAs with Addison Ray's mom, who, by the way, is 42 years old. That's how old I am. What? Yes. She's 42? She's 42. I I feel like that's what I
0: saw. Um, So I am almost three years older than Addison Ray's mom. Yes.
1: Oh my god! And of god. course, like the big. So but we we just need to backtrack for like the people who are about to like you know write letters saying you guys should stick to the 1975. Um, this <laughs> young gravy, he's a rapper. He's big on TikTok, and you know he's from Minnesota. Went to UW Madison. I know Steve likes to see a local wow. dude make good in the rap game.
0: Yeah, that well, that's why he's got gravy in his name because <laughs> we love gravy here in the Upper Midwest.
1: Uh, Wikipedia says his musical style has been described as humorous, satirical, and groovy. That has six footnotes on it. Um, yes, and apparently, like there was a thing he did for a while where he just where where TikTok viewers would just send pictures of their mom, and he would talk about like, "Hey, I want to bang your mom." Uh, so hence, this is why he took Addison Ray's mom, who Addison Ray is a famous TikToker to the VMAs, wow. which I mean, you might say like, what the fuck does this have to do with MTV? I mean, Beers and butthead are now watching TikToks in their review.
0: Well, did you say that the reason we're talking about this is because they were at the VMAs together? I don't know if you've mentioned that yet. You're, you're, you're burying the lead in all this context. <laughs> they were at the VMAs which together, is, yes. Yeah. We're the VMAs were last weekend and, uh, this was the only thing. Well, re- oh, actually, there were two things that happened at the VMAs. Young Gravy took Addison Ray's mom, which that generated a lot of press. And the other thing is that Taylor Swift announced a new album called *Midnights*. And I have to say that, like, when I saw this on Monday morning, I felt like this was below Taylor Swift to go on the on the VMAs and announce an album. The VMAs are a zombie award show at this point. I have no idea why this thing still exists. I feel like there was a time you and I would remember in the aughts where aging music writers would watch the VMAs as if this was a way to take the pulse <laughs> of young America, and it had that relevance. Now I feel like it's the zombie-chasing youth culture. I mean, is not setting the pace at all. It's just attempting to glom on to whatever is trendy for this like three-hour stretch of time every year when they're not airing ridiculousness. I mean, (laughs) I feel like that's all they do now is air ridiculousness, and then once a year they, they put on the VMAs. And it's like, why is Taylor Swift going on this show? She's so much bigger than this show in MTV. It just seemed beneath her. But then it was pointed out that this album has 13 songs and it is now 13 years since the Kanye West incident at the VMAs. So like if you're Robin from the (laughs) rehearsal... This has serious significance. I think there's some other numerology things with this too. Yeah,
1: very much so. I've seen some really cool Do you cool want to look stuff. into I've it? I've seen some really cool stuff with numerology with this one. And I don't know. I think that like when you consider that maybe Taylor Swift's audience, you know, amongst other people are aging music critics still trying to like glom on to teen trends. Maybe this is the venue. If, if, if she was to choose like a television show to announce it on, it's really funny. Like I, I actually, uh, at work, yesterday tried to talk to you know some of the 18 to 25 year olds or whatever it's like hey so anyone see the VMAs just out of curiosity and this one who was 22 was like yeah my mom asked me if I was watching it you know uh so (laughs) again maybe maybe they're like recap and I'm sure this woman's mom is like close to our age so maybe I don't know maybe this is their way of pulling in like the 40 something audience it's it's you know you got to think like Robin from the rehearsal this is just 8d chess going on with the VMAs
0: I guess. I just feel like Taylor Swift doesn't need to go on the VMAs to get publicity for <laughs> a new album announcement. If anything, it's the other way around, where the VMAs can pretend that they can justify their existence for another year because of that whole thing.
1: Well, I thing. think, didn't Taylor Swift uh, like win more VMAs at this one than like anyone else in history? Well, there was. This, I think
0: she's won Video of the uh, Year more times than anyone, and I'm sure there was some wink wink nudge nudging that if you show up we're going to give you an award I, if not outright telling her we'll give you an award we'll make up an award you know we'll give you the uh you know greatest artist of the century award you know or whatever it is like they gave the red hot chili peppers a, a global icon award like whatever that means
1: I love that. Make make up an award. Yo, we got to get the Chili Peppers. It's like the most outstanding. It's like the Mr. Burns (laughs) most standing achievement in the the, the field of great. I can't believe I'm fumbling a fucking Simpsons reference in this episode. This is like.
0: Well, I mean, the Chili Peppers, that's like the voodoo lounge era Rolling Stones (laughs) showing up to the VMAs like when we cared about it in the 90s. It probably did. I have no idea. I don't know if they like made up an award to give to the Stones, and then they came out and played Love is Strong. Oh, yeah. And uh, everyone loved it. Uh, but, you know, hats off to the Chili Peppers. I, I hope they put that Global Icon Award in a safe spot. I wonder, like, if John Frusciante was thinking, like, oh, why did I come back to this? <laughs> I, I don't want to get a Global Icon Award Yeah, at the VMAs. Yeah, maybe he th- did. But that's, like, part of the so. I- He's like, this makes it all worth it. My journey was leading to this moment of getting this totally made-up award at this zombie-fied award show in 2022, where everyone else in the building is like a third our age. Uh, you think Fashante was thinking that? You think he was like, oh, I've... Th- th- uh, I, I feel fulfilled in this moment.
1: I feel like trying to predict what's going on in John Freshante's mind is a fool's errand. So, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, also I just yeah. love the, the other thing. I love is that like they gave some sort of like lifetime achievement award to Nicki Minaj, who then like proceeded to perform like a shit ton of songs she has publicly said that she doesn't like. So I think I, yeah. I think if there's any sort of encapsulation of the VMA experience in 2022, there it is.
0: That's it. <laughs> well, let's get to our mailbag here, and thank you all for writing to us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Hit us up at IndycastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, this week, we got a ton of letters from across the pond, as they say, over in the UK, because last week we were talking about the Arctic Monkeys announcing a new album called The Car, and it comes out in October. And we were wondering, like, where, how do the Brits feel about Arctic Monkeys at this point? Obviously, they're a popular band, but is there any coolness still with this band? Or are they looked at as they're just a legacy band? We're sick of these guys. They're popular, but, you know, we could take or leave them. And a bunch of Brits wrote in to give expert testimony on this. And it was interesting because. They all basically agreed that the Arctic Monkeys are still cool in England, although if you are a stuffy record store clerk type, you look down on them maybe at this point while still valuing the first two records. But, you know, AM era, maybe a little too big, not into it anymore. Uh, so we got a bunch of letters. It was great to hear from our British listeners mm-hmm. um, or not just British, just UK in general. Uh, it's just nice to know that that people all around the world are listening to the show. It's really great. And we wanted to read one of the letters here. This is uh, probably our favorite letter that we got. Do you want to read this letter?
1: This is from an Arctic Monkeys fan. Named Chris in North Ireland. So, uh, hi, Steve and Ian. Yes. Or, and maybe they pronounce it I in there. Maybe that's how I think it's pronounced. <laughs> in, it, in answer to your question about whether the Arctic Monkeys are considered cool in the UK, Steve had it bang on the money when he compared their fan base to that of Oasis. They're more of a ah. lads band. Big with more middle-of-the-road indie crowd here. And, and no East London hipster worth their salt would go to bat for them with the possible exception of nostalgic value for the first two albums. I had a conversation with a very sniffy record store clerk in Hackney. Just what a sentence. Uh, I love it. When their last album came out, which confirmed it. I think a lot of their streaming numbers are down to their popularity in Latin America and Australia, borne out by their upcoming tour stops. Big fan of the show. Happy to answer any future questions about Indie UK fan bases. Incidentally, I used to be neighbors with Matt Healy when I lived in London. Very nice guy. He paid for our shared garden wall to be repaired when it collapsed. Wow. Talk about burying the lead. I know. Dropping the mic there with the incidentally
0: (laughs) with some inside uh, Maddie Healy knowledge. And, you know, that's gossip, I guess, but that's like nice gossip. Yeah, good for him. He's buying the wall. Although, it's it's his wall, too, though, it sounds Mm. like. And he is the pop star. He ought to be paying for that. (laughs) So, I don't want to give him too much credit, but, you know. Chris says he's a nice guy. He's our Northern Ireland correspondent, so we'll take him at his word. Um, So yeah, so again, he was confirming our suspicions from last week that this is a band that, like Oasis, considered a lads band. Like Chris says, kind of like a middle-of-the-road indie fan type band. If you're more uh on the discerning side or more of an underground person maybe you don't like arctic monkeys if you're in the uk or you're a little suspicious of them but otherwise just a real band of the people there in the uk
1: yeah and boy is there anything more validating than having our opinions uh you know given to a uk (laughs) person and them saying we got it bang on the money uh we we we're very chuffed about that i think that's how i think that's how (laughs) we use the word um but yeah, yeah i think that it, uh, this gets into the whole like uh the whole c- consideration of like what it means to be cool because you know what like I think when you say like lads band uh that people probably think oasis is super cool the Arctic monkeys are super cool and then there's like the question of like whether they're hip or not and so I think it's this is a really interesting discrepancy between like what Chris describes and now now that the Arctic monkeys are like, not in their AM phase anymore. I feel like they're like almost crossing over to become a critics band. Like, especially the new single, it's like not all that different than what Father John Misty is doing in terms of sound. Um, they've had just so many interesting uh, phases of their career. Like, you know, the in the beginning, like, uh, you know, the nostalgic value of their first two albums. Like, this is when they put out their first album and, you know, the NME gives it like a 12 out of 10, like two months before it comes out. And then they're kind of like, falling off in popularity then am makes them super huge in america which i think also subsequently makes them huge in latin america and australia because like i think of the festival circuits like i've been to coachella and seeing how like lat like south americans and australians really show out for their favorite fans there i'm just so i'm always so interested when a band becomes abnormally famous in, you know, markets. I feel so obnoxious saying South American markets, but, you know, something like that, like Interpol, still enormous in Mexico. That's fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with touring in those places and maybe touring at a certain time in your career where people felt like they were getting in on the ground floor with you. And, you know, especially if it's a country where a lot of bands don't go to, I think that really can breed loyalty uh, in, in these kind of bands. You know, I was thinking about something I wrote many, many years ago about a much different kind of band, but it was about Bon Jovi <laughs> and about like how Bon Jovi was this very popular band during the hair metal era, and they were able to transcend that era and become a very big touring act like well after the 80s in a way that you would maybe be surprised by. And part of that was because in the 90s, when they were down in America, they were touring everywhere else in the world, and they really grew that market, and it sustained them during that time, so that when they did come back in the aughts with that song, It's My Life. Do you remember that song? Of course song? I remember.
1: Like Frankenstein, Terrible I did it. song. Like Frankenstein, I did it my
0: way. Yeah, right. They already had this great... International market already waiting for them, and then America, it was almost like the cherry on the Sunday or something. Um, I want to go back to something you said about Arctic Monkeys, about the, them becoming really big in America with AM. One theme of the emails that we got from our UK listeners was this feeling among the British fans that Arctic Monkeys, you know, went to America and, in, in a sense, like left them behind. And you know, as popular as I think they remain in that country, there's this feeling of, well, have, you know, do they belong to America now and and not so much us? So that's sort of an interesting narrative. And I feel like as Americans, because we're so self-centered, we don't really take those kind of things into account. Like even when American bands do well overseas, we don't think of, well, we're losing them to this other country. Uh, but I think there is a sense sometimes in other countries that if a band is really big in America, then almost like america's taking them away from their country and in a in a way that can ruin the band a little bit it's certainly i think arctic monkeys are an example of a band that used to be super hyper specific as a british band you know making very specific references sounding very english and certainly with am it was americanized on that record
1: yeah i think it uh, this is like the first time in a long time I've thought about this thing that was huge when we were, you know, teens about asking whether a British man can, quote, break America. You know, it's like o- like Oasis was super big, but can they break America? Same with like The Verve or Pulp or Blur. And I think this is like, well, I, can, I guess we could say Glass Animals kind of did that as well. But um, yeah, I think that like Arctic, like Arctic Monkeys to me is i don't know they're kind of in this like lane by themselves as this band that was like super hip and cool like early on but also super popular and have been consistent like i can't think of an american equivalent uh to like yeah like who would be even close well i was trying to think of that
0: about a band that would have started around the time arctic monkeys did. i think their first record came out in 06 and they've remained consistent on in terms of putting out records i mean they, they put out fewer albums now you know the gaps between albums have grown larger but you know they're still an active band and they still have cachet 16 some years later and the band that i came up with is vampire weekend they seem like they're a much different band in terms of sonically and uh, you know what they write songs about but to me you know because you think about early Vampire Weekend they had a similar kind of buzzy quality to them they were really associated with like the blog era of uh, music writing I feel like Arctic Monkeys were too but on the other side of the pond and they've been able to grow and maintain this career although again Vampire Weekend is a lot less prolific than they used to be. Does that comparison make sense? Just in terms of like the arc of their career, not musically. So much.
1: I, I think possibly, but I think arc, like Arctic Monkeys have accumulated such a bigger discography that I think they are like Vampire Weekend hasn't like crossed over to that point, like where they if they release an album, it isn't an automatic contender to be an album of the year at like you know uh, indie websites or whatever. I don't think the Arctic, I don't think Vampire Weekend has crossed to that point yet but i think i, I think in, in in enough time they probably could i think see i would say
0: i think vampire weekend is actually more critically acclaimed than our oh, monkeys but but vampire weekend doesn't have a song like do i want to know that's been streamed 1.5 billion times you know like they, like they don't have the commercial uh you know, track record that Arctic monkeys do. And I don't know how well Vampire Weekend does overseas either. Again, I think, uh, our listener here, uh, is correct. Uh, Chris in Northern Ireland saying, you know, I, and I hadn't taken that into account, but like, they're like a big Latin American market, you know, just other markets all around the world, I'm sure are feeding those streaming numbers, uh, you know, and, and making them so big. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. I'm excited to hear that record. I like that first sing- single that dropped this week. I kind of
1: like it too. Like
0: you said, it is very, uh, it's like a loungy pop song. It is similar in some ways to the previous record, uh, Tranquility Base, Hotel and Casino, although it doesn't have the sci-fi element of <laughs> of that record. Uh, I am curious if they are going to be returning on other places on the new record to that leather jacketed sound of am (laughs) you know are there gonna be any like riffy type rockers on there because there were none on tranquility base i feel like there needs to be some on the car we need some red meat here for the lads out there uh the single by the way is called there better be a mirror ball you can hear it
1: anywhere you stream music. <laughs> I, Go check it out. I love that. You check it out everywhere we're streaming music here, now, and yes. like we're doing the drive time radio. I'm glad we're talking about Queens of the Stone Age because that sound like a real like uh, songs for the death type interlude right there.
0: Well, before we get to that, we need to talk about the biggest indie news of the week, which is the uh, the allegations against Win Butler of Arcade Fire, and I'm going to read here from the Guardian. For those who are unaware of this news, an investigation by the U.S. music publication Pitchfork found that four individuals, aged between 18 and 23 at the time, alleged that Butler behaved inappropriately. The three women and one gender-fluid person accused the singer of exploiting his fame and their fandom, including un- including sending unwanted sexual messages during incidents that occurred between 2015 and 2020, when Butler was between 34 and 39, Butler said the relationships were consensual. Quote, it it is deeply revisionist and frankly just wrong for anyone uh, to suggest otherwise. Um, If you haven't read the Pitchfork story, uh, which dropped last weekend, I recommend doing so. Uh, It's a pretty gross story, Uh, it's very specific. Uh, It it outlines behavior that uh, seemed to have been, uh, uh, there seemed to have been a pattern of this. With Win Butler, uh, for several years, he talks also in that story about substance abuse, and apparently he's in recovery. And I don't know; I think he's making a connection to his behavior at the time to his uh, drinking. Uh, so I mean, the, the the what's outlined in the story again? I think it speaks for itself. It's a very damning story. I think Win Butler's reaction to it, uh, and Arcade Fire in general. Um, hasn't been great. (laughs) I'll just say it that way. Um, I am curious to talk to you, Ian, about where do you think this puts Arcade Fire moving forward? Uh, do you think this is something that they can recover from? Um, are, are they canceled to use an overused word at this point like where do, where do you think the band goes from here
1: I think we we have to stay first and foremost that like a, as you said the accusations or the allegations whatever you wanted to call them like they're pretty damning they're pretty specific it's like it, it it pretty clearly represents like a pattern that was going on over the span of several years and whether or not it was like due to um, you know, you know, alcohol or drug abuse or depression or just like straight up midlife crisis. I think we can say that like this stuff doesn't seem to be coming out of anywhere. And so, like, I just want to say that first and foremost before we get into, you know, the question of like what this means for Arcade Fire. Um, you know, I, I, I hate bringing up this example, but I think it's instructive. Like, um in this new venue that opened up in San Diego, we're getting like a Ryan Adams show. Uh, Apparently he's like selling out venues across the country. Um, And I feel like the response to like his uh, allegations were like much more strong, perhaps because his music wasn't as good lately. But you know, with Arcade Fire, I think if they, they played a show, I think the night before we recorded this episode in Ireland Um, and for a band that Dublin, yeah. And for a band that seems to like want to, Tweet through it for lack of a better term. Like you probably couldn't come up with like a better uh scenario. They're gonna be in Europe for a couple of weeks, maybe even a few months. Their first date is in uh October, late October in DC. So First American date. Yes. The first American date. And that I think that gives them enough time to like get a temperature check. Like I think with this band, even prior to all this, like during Everything Now, during Reflector, even, they I think had maybe an overestimated view of themselves like i recall during like the reflector era they would play these big venues and not really fill them um and i'm looking at the tour itinerary there are like a lot of hockey arenas going on but also they have like beck playing with them like doing an acoustic show um yeah i think with i think with arcade fire here i don't know you you made a point like while we were discussing this, that like people seem to want this like sports, like a like the like the version of like Roger Goodall, like laying down some sort of like suspension for Arcade Fire, like what's appropriate for them to show penance. And at the end of the day, it's just gonna be about like whether Arcade Fire fans give a shit. Um, and I think it seems like the band is relying on the fact that the people will stick by them. As a matter of fact, you're I'm looking at this article that you shared. The band left the stage to a clip of Ben E. King's Stand By Me. Another yeah, let me, possible allusion to the situation.
0: Yeah, let me read this. So, you know, we're, we're talking about how people are going to react uh, to Arcade Fire if this is a band that people are still going to, going to want to buy their records or stream their songs or buy concert tickets. And uh, there's this Guardian story about the uh, tour kickoff in Dublin. There was a reporter there, and... Uh, he writes that before the show like Will like Win Butler showed up and he like walked around the arena and he was greeting surprised and delighted fans. One woman who just minutes earlier had learned of the allegations via Twitter posed with the Grammy winner for selfies beaming. She would read about the allegations after the after the show, she said. Asked by the Guardian if he would address the controversy from the stage, Butler paused, shrugged, offered a handshake and walked away. And then later in the story, it says um, that they didn't really address the allegations from the stage. And then, like you said, at the end of the show, Arcade Fire walked off to Benny King's Stand By Me, which is... Not a bad known for its subtlety. Well, yeah, Arcade Fire, who uh, in the best of times could cause eye rolls by what they did. Uh, this is pretty eye-rolly for me. And, like, look, him going into the audience to pose for selfies, that's an obvious PR move. I don't know. That makes me feel, like, a little icky seeing that. Um, but, you know, you made this point about cancelization and, 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 and fan bases. And you know, I was recently interviewed for the Wall Street Journal, first story it was about ryan adams and i think morgan wallen was covered in that story just musicians who have come back from controversies and the point i made in that story was that only the people who like you can cancel you you know the people that buy your stuff go to your shows hardcore fans they're the ones who matter it doesn't really matter people on social media who didn't like your band anyway if they're condemning you, it really has to come down to your constituency. And with this Dublin show, I'm sure there were fans who didn't show up because of this. How many there were, we don't know. How many there will be in the long run like that, that you know, is unclear. Um, but, you know, in terms of the media, I mean, I think the Ryan Adams example is instructive here. Because Adams was somebody who, for the longest time, if he put out a record... It would get covered, and then after 2019, when that New York Times story uh, came out, there's been an informal blackout essentially on writing about Ryan Adams. I don't think I've seen a review of anything he's done in the last three years, uh, and he's put out several records, but you know, publications aren't even writing about those records to slam them. You know, they're just ignoring those records and i think with arcade fire i don't know if it'll be that extreme but i would suspect that there will be something similar that happens with whatever they do moving forward and i think you know you can make the case certainly i think this is true of ryan adams i think it's probably also true to to a degree with arcade fire that these are acts that are past their prime creatively and also commercially so there is some justification in a sense to ignore them on that level. And then if there's this baggage where media people feel like they're platforming or you know or you know giving a, uh, a signal boost to people who have behaved badly in the past, uh, you know that will just add further justification to that sort of uh, informal blackout. So I th- that is what I suspect. The punishment, and I'm using quote marks for that, will be for Arcade Fire. But it, it does remain to be seen if, if fans care about this. You know, that's always the question here. And it seems like there will always be fans who do not care, mm-hmm. you know, who will show up. And it'll just be up to Arcade Fire if like, those, if there's enough of those people to
1: continue. Yeah, I mean they've already been a te- I think a temporary band or like an indefinite band on Canadian radio. Again, like how much they were getting played on Canadian radio, I'm not sure. Um I think though that like with this um with with this particular controversy, the thing that sparks it a lot more than like say what happened with like Ryan Adams who even their you know their fans would kind of acknowledge this guy's get kind of a drunken like creep in like his music a lot. Like, it clashes against the image that Arcade Fire puts forth, you know, about pious and particularly this uplift of Wii and so forth. And I don't know, it's like, it sounds like, you know, Will But or sorry, Wynn Butler was, like, going through some, like, really serious shit. And the fact that, like, the, the records, like, don't address it at all and, like, go kind of completely against it to present this false sort of narrative about where the band's mind state um i think makes it a offensive is like the wrong word but it just sort of reminds me like what happened with like pine grove that like people feel a lot more outraged about this stuff when it when it directly contradicts the image they put forth on 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 record
0: yeah i mean i i do think it's a little offensive because not only is this a pious band but especially on recent records, they've been a pretty judgmental band. True. You know, we talk about the record Everything Now, and there's lyrics on there where Win Butler is talking about young women who are online too much because they want to be famous. And here he is behind the scenes while that record is being made Picking up on young women that are fans of his band. I mean, there is an obvious disconnect there that is like pretty gross and like awful. And I feel like if you listen to that record now, how can you not think about all this other stuff that we now know was going on while he was making that? I mean, obviously, some people again will not care, yeah. <laughs> but I do feel like because of how he has presented himself publicly it just makes this stuff that much worse you know it's it's bad enough on its own but to know that this guy who has taken a judgmental stance on culture was also acting in a pretty contrary way i don't know it's just something that it just adds to the overall
1: unsavory of this story, I think we also need to point out that uh, I saw that they uh, hired Anthony Wiener's PR team. So if you're yeah. talking about like kind of like P- like you know the crisis PR management, uh, that's you know that's it's thinking like oh yeah, let's go to let's go to that guy. That guy knows what to do with it. So yeah, the whole the whole deal, the whole deal is just like I don't know. I, I didn't need a reason to not really care about Arcade Fire, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, it. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it remains interesting, you know, to see where it goes in here, because this is like really, gr- it's gross behavior, and you know, we. I don't want to turn this into like a fantasy sports kind of thing, but I do think that just on an objective level, I'm very curious to see where a band at this juncture of their career, um, how their fans react to it.
0: So okay, so we're gonna go from Win Butler here to talking about a totally unproblematic band queens of the stone age uh and their record songs for the deaf which turned 20 earlier this week we could have talked about this in our previous episode but i think it 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 slipped by us that this anniversary was coming up so we just wanted to talk about this album a little bit uh because i know for me you know this was an album that took over my life in 2002 when it came out in august And, like, I wanted to live inside of this record, I think, for a long time, which was probably not great in retrospect, but at the time was a lot of fun. Like, this was definitely a record that I enjoyed partying to back then, and I did a lot of partying back then. So there was a lot of drinking, a lot of, you know, drug use during this record, and when I listen to it now, that's what I think about and I still have a lot of affection for this record. I think because of the memories I have associated with it, and also I think it's just a really great album musically. But it is interesting when you have those albums in your past that are associated with like maybe not not a great time in your life, <laughs> you know? Like because that wasn't really a great time in my life. I don't I don't think I was super happy at that time. Uh, but there is like a romantic thing that you project onto those periods of your life when you are outside of them and songs for the deaf it's like one of those albums for me it like as much as any record really in my life like really marks a moment in time
1: yeah i mean you you want to talk about like being down bad yeah august 2002 i finished i was like fresh out of graduating from college had no real direction in my life like was living at home trying to get my feet on the ground and August was just such a phenomenal month for, like, just being really down bad albums. Like, Bright Eyes Lifted came out. Like, that was the album that, you know, made me think that my life was over at 22. Like, A Rush of Blood to the Head, that's a song, you know, album I'd listened to when I was, like, sad about women. Turn on the bright lights. Like, that was an album that I listened to when I was sad in, in New York. And then Songs for the Deaf, that... <laughs> I don't want to say that album was, like, a mood booster because, like you were saying, it's, like, a really kind of dirty and nasty, uh, you know, album if I want to, like, live inside it, like, just kind of not shower for a week straight, but nonetheless, it's like when you're drinking in your parents' garage, like, no one knows makes it sound like a higher spiritual calling, and I, when I listen to this album now, like, I can, uh, I could, you know, look back with, um, you know, some sympathy for the person who experienced that age. Like I have to remember that when like these, tw- when, when I see like 22 year olds or whatever, post being like kind of annoying on Twitter about like say Phoebe Bridgers or whoever, it's like, if I had Twitter back when Queens of the Stone Age came out, like God fucking knows what I would have said. Um, listen yeah, to it recently. It would have been bad. Yeah. listen to it recently and it's, you know, it, it still holds up really well. Uh, I made kind of a controversial uh, statement that I would probably cut three songs from it um you know probably towards the end like Ghana's I don't I don't radio. think that's
0: controversial okay I think a lot of people would probably side with you on that i I just I wouldn't cut anything just because it's the album it's it's how I know the album and some albums become such a part of your life that you embrace weaknesses of it so yeah i can acknowledge maybe god on the radio god is on the radio isn't like one of the best songs on the record but you know i wouldn't cut anything from exile on main street either you know i i I like the weaker songs on that record because it's part of the experience and also like exile on main street songs for the deaf is a big party record for me so if you're drinking as you say in your parents garage (laughs) a longer record means that you can just drink longer so that, that it's the bug is the feature in this <laughs> case, in this instance.
1: Yeah, I I mean in the time since though like 2002 on has there been like as good of like a dirtbag drinking rock record than this one or something that even comes close?
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I could think of would be like some of those Mastodon albums. Although even that is like a while ago now. Like you know, like Leviathan (laughs) or Blood Mountain. You know, those occupy a similar lane for me. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that kind of record, it's become a rarity because you know they were classified at the time as stoner metal, and I feel like most metal now. It doesn't really sit in that lane. The difference with Queens of the Stone Age is that Josh Homey has like a really pretty voice. And most metal or hard rock singers are screamers now. They don't have that sweet element to go with the sleaze. And I think that was always the secret sauce for Queens of the Stone Age. That there was the sweetness there that went with the sleazy and the evilness of the music. And most people just want to go evil now. Hmm. So, that to me is like what separates them and makes that a strong record. Uh, even with, again, all of Josh Ome's baggage now. And Nicole I mean, Laveri. Yeah. Oh, you know, Nicole Laveri. Yeah, that's a whole other God. <laughs> nightmare right there. Yeah, again, like this, yeah, particularly this lineup. I mean, like Nick Oliveri was so problematic that he got kicked out of Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, you know that that that, that says it all right there. With Dave
1: Mustaine of our era, like getting kicked out of Metallica <laughs> for being too drunk.
0: Yeah, or uh, the Stephen Adler of uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Uh, but again, we have to. I, I feel like we have to tip our cap to that record. It was a big record for both of us. So Songs for the Deaf, we would definitely put that in the Indie Cast Hall of Fame, maybe in its own wing. You know, it's like the uh, the Queens of the Stone Age wing of the IndyCast Hall of Fame, although that, that record's probably too famous to be in the hall, but maybe it would get in anyway. Uh, let's talk
1: about the new Muse album. Let's talk about the new uh, Muse album, man, because people, <laughs> I, I think we've gotten, like, more on Twitter requests to talk about the second, to do a 10th anniversary Second Law episode than, like, literally anything else.
0: Yeah, well, we, that, that used to be a bit on the show, and then... We stop talking about it, but we still get listeners who want us to talk about it, and that is coming up in September, by the way, the 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 tenth anniversary of the Second Law. So we will have to talk about that, I think.
1: You absolutely will. The September. people demand it. It is the hold on here, the will of the people that we talk about the Second. Okay, I, I, I'm gonna yes. like clock off. That was like the that was maybe like the dumbest joke I've ever made in the history of IndieCast. Like save this for posterity.
0: Well, the episodes. The episode's not over yet, so don't call it too <laughs> early. There could be dumber jokes ahead of us. Will of the People, by the way, is the name of the new Muse record. It's the ninth Muse record. It's been described by the band as a greatest hits album of new songs. I love that. Which, I love the boldness of that. And look, I this is a band that I like talking about because, well, one, I think that they were a legitimately good band in the aughts i'll defend aughts era muse records like origin of symmetry i have a really soft spot for black holes and revelations nights of sidonia was definitely a uh, a song i blasted in the car in the mid-aughts on many occasions um and in recent years i feel like there's been this knowing campiness that has settled in with Muse. And, and there's always been some element of that with this band. Even like, you know, you see the video for Knights of Sedonia. Very campy video. I mean, they're in on the joke. But I feel like it's gotten more extreme, and it's starting to feel shticky with this band. And, you know, this new record, it feels to me like this is basically a COVID-era record in an anti-shutdown Record, although it's not explicitly that, it's a record that's about striking against over-controlling governments, <laughs> governments that want to crush people. Uh, you know, there's a song, the second song on the record is called Compliance, and it kind of reminds me of like this is a very specific reference that no one will care about, aside from a few people. But like, you know, like w- when sticks. <laughs> Did their concept record in the early '80s, like with the song "Mr. Roboto" on it, and I can't remember. the, Kilroy was here. I, I cannot fucking
1: right. believe I know that off the top. Like we, holy yeah, shit! That's like the only you got
0: that Kilroy was, was the here. Only
1: that's the only Sticks album I know of because of Mr. Roboto. So yeah, let's, okay. That's great. We can't, we can't great. do a Sticks wow. deep
0: dive. That's amazing. That's I love that you were able to pull that out of the ether. <laughs> This record, it gives me big Kilroy was here uh, vibes, where it's this arena rock band that is incorporating electronic elements in this very, uh, you know, ham fisted concept about government control. And you can't take it seriously, really. But I also can't hate it. There's something about this band that I just cannot bring myself to hate. I know a lot of people despise this band um but whenever they put out a record i always feel compelled to check it out because there's just something about it. i guess because i used to like it and also because any band that's this ridiculous in 2022 i i I just find myself wanting to like it much more than i actually end up liking
1: it yeah i think that with every now and again you'll get like movie Twitter talking about like how Michael Bay is actually a genius. And, you know, maybe like, because (laughs) after like consuming like A24 type movies for so long, you just want to see shit blow up. And, you know, I think for a long time, Muse, maybe, I don't know, if they presented themselves as like a smart band, maybe like they saw themselves as like Rush, even though they were more like sticks, I think. And at a certain point, I think it was maybe... You know, after Drones, which was their album in 2015, which the cover is just un- unfucking believable. It's like a joystick, <laughs> like a man being played like a joystick. I think that like, yeah, they're not that dumb. And I think when they realized that like they could be in on the joke, um, I think you saw like a real turning point as far as like you, the the way, you know, critics treat that band, because you know, once a band starts making fun of themselves It's, like, no fun to beat them to the punch anymore. And so, you know, like, they. I think with this record, uh, the first song is, like, a pretty obvious The Beautiful People ripoff. The last song is called... Yeah, it's egregious. The last song is called... It's an egregious uh, ripoff. uh, The last song is called We Are Fucking Fucked. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And he describes it on Apple Music. I I read his... um, the, I I just got to bring up this a very 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 deep cut. I remember I read Double XL magazine back in 2000 when Big Timers dropped. Um, was I got that work and you would hear you would read like uh, Baby and Manny Fresh explain the meaning behind the songs. Like all their songs are about cars and money, and you would just try to see them like struggle to get some deeper meaning. We are fucking fucked is described by Matt Bellamy as this. Um, all these natural disasters, all this stuff that's happening, civil unrest, blah blah blah. So that yeah. is our that is one of our great thinkers, one of our one of our leading minds of uh, rock music. And you know what? Like I just I, I just love beholding this album. Just in terms of like, you know, if you've ever like played an acoustic guitar, maybe tried to put a song together. The. Like, how does this stuff actually happen, you know? Like, how do you get, like, people in the studio together and conceive of a song, like, we are fucking fucked and, like, yep, yeah, this, is, this is what we were going for right here. It's just, it's just really, it's like almost watching, like, the rehearsal to use that uh, reference again and just to say, like, how did they do that, you know? Just objectively.
0: Yeah, there is a combination with Muse where, again, there's a knowing campiness to it At the same time, if you're a certain kind of person, this is a band that you can really take super seriously. Like, one person who loves Muse is Glenn Beck. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a video of Glenn Beck, you can look it up on YouTube, where he just talks about how profound Muse is. And it's because of this strain of anti-government rhetoric in their songs. And how you have to stand up against forces that are trying to control you so if you have someone like glenn beck who likes to stroke his chin a lot and talk about the same things that interest matthew bellamy you know there is this confluence of like dumb smart guys or smart dumb (laughs) guys i'm not sure exactly how that balances but there i'm sure there's like a strain of like libertarian who just loves muse and it's probably like like that constituency is probably like, this is like the greatest band yeah, in the they're world. Ch- they're and just asking questions, Muse. They're just asking questions. And again, you know, I can't quit them. I'm sure there's people who are like, why are you talking about Muse? Which by the way, this is going to be like one of the biggest rock records of the year. So that's another reason to talk about it. But I don't know. They're a band where like, if they put out a record, I'm always going to feel inclined to listen to it. Even if I know... Uh, it's kind of like there's going to be stupidity on the record that's going to blow my mind. And I guess, again, that's just like part of what I love about it. I just can't. Yeah.
1: I mean, like we, like, I would imagine that you're like me and consider like, this is Spinal Tap, one of the greatest movies of all time. I mean, yeah. yeah. Like you just kind of have to love a band that's doing it in real time. And also Matt Bellamy, if you're listening, which you know, is, I don't think that's like completely out of the, the, the realm of possibility. I just want to see like where he's at with the whole, we want magnets on stage. Like we want to float using magnets. That was like a big (laughs) thing, I think during the drones era. And, um, yeah, if, if he can't do it, who can, like, I'm just, I, I, I kind of want to see a muse show. Like, I just really want to see what they do on stage.
0: I haven't seen them live. I bet they'd be an amazing arena band. So we yeah we, we, I feel like we're talking ourselves out of caring about Muse, and then at the end here, we're talking ourselves back into it. It's just a very dysfunctional relationship that I think we both have with this band. Let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum from Muse here, to a guy who I've been listening to a lot. His name is Mo Troper. He's a Portland-based singer-songwriter. He put out a record that's out today. It's called MTV, and... I love it. I think it's a really great record. And it's interesting with him because he's had, I think, a, a fairly long career. He's been putting out records and also playing in other people's bands. He came uh, like, onto my radar in 2021 when he put out a record called Dilettante, which has 28 songs that go by in 50 minutes. And if that's giving you Guided by Voices vibes, then it should, because there is a GBV element to what mo does he writes very short songs he records them in a lo-fi manner they're a little bit sloppy but at the same time he is a really i think master of writing pop hooks there's a lot of song craft to his songs even if they're presented again in this sort of lo-fi shambling manner and it got me thinking about the state of power pop in 2022 because this is a power pop record you know i mentioned gbv before but the reference points on this record are just classic power pop it's beatles it's beach boys it's big star you know there's some you know teenage fan club elements in there as well um and it made me think about another record that's coming out soon by a band from philadelphia called second grade and that record is called easy listening it comes out september 30th we'll talk about it more next month but that's one of my favorite albums of 2022 and in my mind anyway it's very much a companion record to this mo troper record uh because they are drawing from a similar well second grade has a similar lo-fi aesthetic to them although easy listening is a slicker sounding record those of you out there i don't know if i've talked about this album on this show but second grade put out an album in 2020 called hit to hit and that's another album that has a lot of songs i think it's 24 songs or 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 thereabouts very short but again very hooky they come in deliver a verse a chorus and then and then they get out of the way um i was wondering if you've heard this motropa record what you think about it and if you have any feelings about power pop because it does seem like there's like a bumper crop here of like really great power pop records and we don't have that every year there's always power pop happening somewhere but i feel like these two records are like really good examples of the genre i
1: think that power pop has been this uh subgenre that's been on the radar for a while for me because every every few years there's like this exodus of hardcore bands into some other sort of genre like there were hardcore bands that like wanted to sound like grunge back in like, say 2013 and then Bruce Springsteen and shoegaze. And then all of a sudden there were like a lot of hardcore bands that like wanted to sound like teenage fan club. Um, And so you would get a lot of uh, bandwagon S talk. Like, let me just be abundantly clear. Like when hardcore bands start trying to sound like teenage fan club, it's usually pretty bad because all it means is that they're just like kind of slowing down the tempo and adding an acoustic guitar and like, they don't really have the hooks. Um, but what w- with this kind of newer crop of things, um, I think it gets more into not like the power pop as like, you know, as like Teenage Fan Club or like Fountains of Wayne, but more the kind of guided by voices um, you know, side of things, which I find to be inherently interesting because um there are two types of power pop, I think. There's like the craftsmanship type with like you know i I see that as kind of associated with like you know Largo in la that's like where you talk about like Adam schlesinger um you know rest in peace um, but you know Fountains of Wayne for all their great songs they wrote some like really fucking terrible songs as well um and there's like you know jellyfish or bands like that who I that stuff just leaves a bad taste in my mouth because i I just think of like being harangued by critics who can't figure out like why matthew sweet isn't as big as say nirvana um yeah but like no one's no
0: one's doing yeah. that anymore though i mean that
1: like, like power pop this is i feel like
0: it's as niche like niche as it ever has been you know like we are probably among the handful of critics who would even talk about this you know probably because we come from a generation where. There was a Fountains of Wayne or a Jellyfish or a Matthew Sweet. And by the way, I like all of those <laughs> groups. I also have to shout out Sloan, who I think
1: Classic, is yeah.
0: probably the best power pop album, like band of like modern times. They have a new album coming out, I believe, in October. They've released some singles this month that are really quite good. I mean, they're a very consistent band. I love the fact that they're still around. I think the 30th anniversary of their first record, which is Smeared, came out in 92. I think it comes out... I think the anniversary is this uh, around the same time that the new album comes out, so they, they they've been around uh, for a long time. But you know, it's interesting you bring up Guided by Voices, and you know I was talking about them too. You know they aren't really a power pop band in my mind. I mean they have elements of that in their sound, but what's interesting about people like like Motroper and Second Grade is that I think they're taking the aesthetic of Guided by Voices and applying it to power pop, and I think what That does which is good is it just makes this music a little less precious and a little less shiny and slick i think the downfall of this kind of music is that sometimes it can be a little too straightforward and it ends up sounding like the friends theme (laughs) song you know which i kind of i mean i don't mind that's that's by the rembrandts they're a power pop band they have some other good songs but you know it, it gets into that vein and it gets like a little hard to take but on um, like the Motropa record in particular he's writing really good songs but they also sound pretty <laughs> fucked up and noisy and i think that combination of noise and melody i mean that's the peanut butter and jelly of indie rock i mean that's those things always go together well and he's able to do that i think in a really like real way that's that's effective with second grade they do that too although i think their new record is a little more on the melody side and because the melodies are so good that record i think just works like gangbusters so i'm i'm excited to talk more about that record when it comes out next month but uh yeah this motropa record get him on your radar if you like this kind of music because mtv really good record i i, I think Dilaton is really good he has other albums that, that came out before that but i can definitely uh stump for those these last two, I, they're the ones I've listened to the most, and I've really enjoyed them. I'm going
1: to have to throw in uh, Daisy as well, like D-A-Z-Y. Last year, they put out a record, I believe, on cassette or something like that, um, and hopefully they have a new record coming out as well. They It was Maximum Blast, Super Loud, the first 24 songs. Uh, this came out last year, and a lot more kind of punkish, but... You know, if if you like uh, second grade Motroper, that's another band I've, I've got my eye on as well.
0: Do you think that a ba- you know, just to go into the emo realm here for a second, Thank do you, you think a band like Joyce Manor has any power pop? They're called pop punk, but I feel like. Especially as they've evolved, that it feels less punk and more power pop at times to me.
1: Absolutely. I think Million Dollars to Kill Me um, was their attempt at making like a big star record. Like, you know, when I interviewed Barry Johnson of Joyce Manor, he said that explicitly. Also, when we talked, like back when I interviewed him, I think in 2014, uh, when they put out Never Hung Over Again, we talked about the Guided by Voices comparison. You know, they're a band that they like, and, you know, the difference is that you know, Guided by Voices songs are 25 songs long and Joyce Manor albums are 10 songs long. And I'm like, you know, what do you think about like Guided by Voices and the fact they put so many songs? He's like, don't you wish they wouldn't? So he described his albums as like Guided by Voices if they like kept all just like the really great songs. So I'd absolutely, they're they're huge teenage fan club fans. They love Weezer. Like they're definitely power pop. But I think that A Million Dollars to Kill Me was kind of indicative of like how, you know, punk bands, if they're going to do power pop, they need to like keep much more punk in it. And that's what they did on you know, 40 Ounces to Fresno, which I think is a stronger record.
0: Well, and you made that point earlier about hardcore bands that start doing teenage fan club sound-alikes and how a lot of it doesn't work well. I feel like we have to shout out Tony Molina, oh, yeah. who is the ultimate example of that, and, and doing it great. Yes. you know, And I feel like he's the one that is the most successful with that. And his, his songs are super short. I mean, you know, he makes Joyce Manor songs feel like November Rain or something, because <laughs> he'll he'll do like an eleven-second song, and where it's just a cool riff and maybe like the trace of a chorus, and then he's getting out. So you know, he's he's really uh, been a master of, of brevity. But uh, we should mention that he put out a record earlier this year called In the Fade, and uh, I'm just looking this up. It's 14 songs and uh it's probably about 14 minutes long <laughs> no, it's 14 songs 18 minutes long but that's a record worth checking out if you are into the new sound of power pop in 2022 We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first?
1: All right. So, um, you know, we, we got a little bit of a blowback uh, for me always uh, pointing out what, like, unlistenable emo <laughs> in Recommendation Corner. So. Uh, no, nah, that was one grumpy okay. guy
0: who said he unsubscribed. We got, we got a piece of hate mail this week from a guy who said he was not listening to the show because there's too much gossip. Too much big time indie. And he also took a shot at unlistenable emo records that you're shouting out in Recommendation <laughs> Corner. I do not think that's representative of Indie Cast Nation. So please, pr- please continue. Do not
1: let the haters stop you. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're getting on our Muse thing. It's like, you know, the, they want to control you. You got to fight back. Uh, listen to Will the People. Um, but yeah, this, uh, a, an album that comes out uh, this uh, today, as a matter of fact, uh, one I've been looking forward to for a while, it's a band called The Callous Dow Boys. Like, let that sink in. There's the joke in there. Um, and ah. then they're an Atlanta band who uh, made a pretty big impression in 2019, I believe, with uh, Die on Mars. And their new album is called Celebrity Therapist. Um, you might notice that the cover uh, looks a little bit like Mars Volta's uh, Francis the Mute. Um, there is a little bit of Mars Volta going on, but I'd say that this record is probably the biggest and best thing to happen in the realms of like metal core or math core, you know, these pretty uncool offshoots of metal that like no one in the indie realm tends to touch with a 10 foot pole. Like, I mean, even the quote unquote cool stuff like Dillinger Escape Plan and Botch who put out a new song recently, their first in 20 years. Um, they also, I, I just got a shout like look up the chariot live Russia that's to get an idea of like what this band's into but you know this is an acquired taste but this band um you know they have some system of a down and faith no more type melody going on maybe some mr bungle as well but it's a very dense record it's a very interesting record in terms of like the instrumentation um and it's very chaotic in in, in a way that i find very appealing But, you know, if you care about, like, the more interesting sides of metal in 2022, I feel like this is going to be something that, you know, gets a real cult audience around us. And you know what? Like, with metal, we were talking about before how uh, there's no sweetness in metal, like, as in Queens of the Stone Age. Like, I feel like so much metal these days is, like, kind of niche. This is niche, too, in a way, but I think it's got a bit more uh, crossover potential than most stuff in this realm. So, Boys, check it out.
0: So, I want to talk about a record that came out a few weeks ago, but I've been listening to a lot uh, this month, and it's a self-titled record by a Chicago guitarist named Eli Winter, and, you know, there's a lot of instrumental guitar records that come out over the course of any particular year, and I end up sampling a lot of them because I like that kind of music, but I find that even if I'm enjoying them in the moment, that they don't really stick with me. Because most records in this vein really feel like collections of jams more than full-fledged songs. And there's only I think a handful of people, and I would list people like Steve Gunn, Riley Walker, uh, William Tyler, artists like that. I think that they are the best at those kind of records at this moment in time. But most of them, I think, kind of come and go uh, without leaving much of an impression. Eli Winter, I think, has the potential to join that class of, like, top-flight instrumental guitarists who are really good songwriters as well as being great players. And I should mention that this record does have the benefit of, like, a really good supporting cast including some of the people I've already mentioned. Riley Walker plays on this record, David Grubbs, Yasmin Williams, another great guitar player who put out one of my favorite albums of 2021. Um, But Eli, I think, again, I think he's a really good songwriter and there are six songs on this record. And I think the journey that this album takes you on, which goes from very beautiful finger picking to just discordant noise and and, and feedback, it really does amount to something greater than the sum of its parts. It, it, again, it feels like compositions, not just jams. And I think for this time of the year in particular, you know, as we're winding down with summer, this is a record that you're going to want to play when you're hanging out, watching the sunset, and just reflecting on the day. This seems like a perfect soundtrack for, for that. So again, his name is Eli Winter. The record is called Eli Winter, and uh i think you should check it out yeah i heard
1: that I, I enjoyed this record as well i heard it i'm like yeah this is gonna end up in steve's recommendation corner at some point but <laughs> at the end of the summer like we're record like as we record it's gonna be like 92 degrees today in san diego and like i got no ac on while i'm recording so like oh, i'm like geez. gonna listen to this album while i'm sweating my ass off see how that goes
0: that will work <laughs> it'll cool you off Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs)